the grayness on that fifth limb, and that's the same grayness you have any time you look at these part for A, any voids type cases, there's there's always some scenarios which are clearly an issue and some scenarios which are clearly fine and then a lot in the middle where you can argue either way depending whether you're the tax purveyor or the ATO. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 389 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, we covered situation 123 listed in paragraph 10 of TR 98-4. We discussed situation number one, property not transferred beneficially to the child. Situation number two, not from the investment of property. Situation number three, not transferred as the result of a family breakdown. Today, let's cover situation number four and five with Patrick Elwood of Clover Law in Brisbane. Transactions that are not arm's length, as well as transactions that are the result of an agreement. So let's start with situation number four, non-arm's length transactions. So coming to situation four, not at arm's length return. And this one gets very grey now. Situation number four, not at arm's length return. Number four, quote. It derives from the investment of property, but exceeds an arm's length return on the investment of the property. Now, before we look at situation number four, I just want to quickly take you back to section 102 AG, because section 102 AG already outlines the issue of not arm's length transactions, and it outlines it in paragraph three. So please forgive me if I read this to you, but I just think it helps to have already heard it once. So, subsection three says, if any two or more parties, and now comes a very strange word, it's the derivation, the derivation of income. So think of to derive income, derivation. It's an odd word. I've never really heard it before. And then plus my accent makes it very difficult to understand. So just be used to this word, the derivation, because it shows up quite a bit. So if any two or more parties to A, the derivation of the accepted trust income or b any act or transaction directly or indirectly connected with the derivation of that accepted trust income we're not dealing with each other at arm's length in relation to the derivation or in relation to the act or transaction the accepted trust income is only so much if any of that income as would have been derived if they had been dealing with each other at arm's length in relation to the derivation or in relation to the act or transaction, end of quote. So section 102 AG already very clearly excludes income that was not derived at arm's length. What TR 98-4 does in paragraph 14 is just adding examples. And the examples, just so you have heard them before and come prepared, let me just quickly read them to you since you are driving or walking. So in paragraph 14 of TR 98-4, it says in situation four, the income derives from the investment of property, but exceeds an arm's length return on the investment of the property. This is the case for instant. And so now come the three examples. And so now let me just throw them at you. They're probably quite confusing and oddly worded, but let me just throw them at you so that you have heard them before we go into the interview. So example number one, 
wherever only nominal property is transferred to the CMT, but substantial amounts of income flow to the trustee by way of distributions from a discretionary trust of which the CMT is a beneficiary and to which the CMT has lent its property. So that's example number one. Example number two, where the CMT subscribes a nominal amount for units in a unit trust, which receives income by way of distributions from a discretionary trust, the excess of an arm's length rate of return on the amount subscribed to the unit trust is not accepted trust income. And example number three, where the trustee's share of partnership income from any share of such income transferred to the trustee or from any partnership entered by the trustee with property transferred to the trustee is only accepted income up to an arm's length share of the partnership income. So these were the three examples just read from paragraph 14 of taxation ruling 98-4, just so that you have heard them. At the very end, there is a sentence that when you first read it or hear it, it sounds very odd, but it will actually make sense. And that sentence is, annuity income can only be accepted up to the amount of income an arm's length annuity purchased with the same property would produce. And that's very odd. But I think it just means... If you do a loan, for example, back to the operating company of the father, then you can't charge interest that is above market value. I think that's all it says. But so that is the plain text of paragraph 14 in TR 98-4 about situation 4. So now let's cut across to Patrick Elwood of Clover Law in Brisbane. The first problem I have is a unit trust. When you have a unit trust, the trustee doesn't really have any discretion because in a unit trust, all income must be distributed and all income must be distributed to the unit holders. So there is no discretion. Hence, the distribution from a unit trust would always be at arm's length. Is my reasoning right or are there big holes in it? No, I think your reasoning is logical. That assumes, and, and this sort of starts looking at the, the stacking of entities, that assumes that the income that the unit trust is deriving is at arm's length as well. So the tax office doesn't like the idea that you artificially boost the income of a child maintenance trust by artificially boosting the income of the unit trust and then having that distributed through. But assuming that the unit trust is just carrying on ordinary commercial activities and there's no sort of arm's length or unusual dealings going on, then yeah, I think there's a compelling case that any distributions out of that unit trust are arm's length return. The sorts of things that the tax office gets worried about, are, I think they might have given this as, as an example, like say there's a loan, let's say the, the child maintenance trust makes a loan to a related party and charges a 40% interest rate when a commercial rate might be 5%. Well, the tax office says, okay, well, you've charged a significantly higher loan to related party to maximise their deduction and, and maximise how much income in that child maintenance trust gets access to these concessions. So they don't like that. Or then the other one is if the child maintenance trust is acquiring equity in a related entity that's not a sort of typical ordinary share, ordinary unit. So I might go and acquire a a share in a private company that's a special class of share that gives it dividend-only rights, well, what's the ordinary rate of return you'd expect on a $1 dividend-only share? If you're going to go and declare a million-dollar dividend on that, that's probably going to be of, uh, of significant interest to the ATO. So basically, so what sort of return would 
an arm's length third party investor received on that asset. And if the child maintenance trust is receiving significantly more than that, then it's going to raise some red flags. You raised uh, two very good points. The first one is loans and the second one is different classes of shares. Coming to the loan, I think the loan is actually a very popular way of structuring it quite advantageously. And that is when you have a genuine business that is operating and has capital needs, but the capital gets contributed to the CMT, but then the CMT loans it back to the business so the business has working capital. And then you charge market rates of interest. So that's very important. The interest must be charged at market rate. But the advantage of that is that the business can then tax deduct the interest payments, but the interest income in the CMT is basically not taxed, assuming we are within, or is taxed quite low, assuming income that arrives in the children's tax returns is actually not that high. So that is actually quite advantageous setup, correct? Yeah, and that probably the only thing I'd add to that is this question around what's an arm's length return on that loan. It's not just looking at the interest rate that gets charged, it's looking at the overall, what, what's an appropriate interest rate or return based on the overall loan structure. And so it's yeah. somewhat, it's a little bit akin to the uh, the rules around super borrowing arrangements where they say, well, you your super fund can go and set up a special purpose trust to borrow money. But if you're going to borrow money from a related party, the overall loan, loan terms need to be on a commercial basis. The, those loan terms are going to be different depending on whether it's a secured or an unsecured loan at the, the length of the loan, all those sorts of things. So so you might use the interest rate that is prescribed for an LRBA or you might use the interest rate that is prescribed for a Division 7A loan, correct? Yeah, I think the safest thing in that sort of situation to do is actually to go and get a quote or some indicative lending terms from an actual third-party financier. So, so you go down to your local bank, you go and get a letter of offer or an indication from them to say, okay, if we were going to lend you $300,000 to your business, this is the security we'd want and this is the interest rate we'd charge. And then you replicate that from the child maintenance trust. So you basically ask for a fixed rate loan and then you see what you get and that's what you charge. Yeah, you get, you get some independent evidence basically to say, well, this is arm's length terms because the bank was an arm's length party and this is what it was prepared to offer. So we, we've replicated what we could have got from someone else externally. And I think this is quite popular because when you read up about CMTs, this is an example that is very often used as showing how a CMT can work quite well. Have you seen these loans? Yeah, we've certainly seen loans and also seen investments in related entities. So dad carries on a business through a company and so they go and put some of the shares in that company in the CMT. Very similar yeah. sort of rationale. It's um, sort of keeping the asset or the wealth within the family, but moving some of that wealth to this uh, concessionally taxed environment. And that leads to my next point I wanted to discuss with you. You already touched on it. And that is when you use special classes of shares. From what you said before, I got the impression that special classes of shares are an issue. So if you have class A going to dad and class B going to the children, and then the dividend to class A and class B are quite different, then that would very much raise an arm's length concern, correct? Yeah, and that sort of ties in with the, the fifth limb as well, which is basically saying, well, is this an artificial scheme or arrangement that's been contrived to get concessional tax treatment? 
of that the second you start using different classes of shares or different classes of units or doing but basically offering an investment opportunity to that child maintenance trust which wouldn't be available to anyone else well it's going to be pretty hard to show to the tax officer's satisfaction that it's not an artificial scheme and that the return was an arm's length return. Actually, sorry, a very basic question. Can you, in, a, in a unit trust, can you actually have different classes of units? Like you can have different classes of shares? Yeah, you can. And it, and it effectively converts it into something akin to a hybrid trust. So you can have... Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's sort of governed by the trusted. You can do whatever you like. You can have multiple different classes of units with all sorts of different rights attached to them. And it's no longer a fixed trust, but it's still a unit trust. Um, just with particular peculiarities or quirks to it. And every, everyone you see tends to be slightly different from the one before and the one after it. So whenever you have different classes of shares or units, then you have an issue. Then you have an issue under situation four, where you possibly have not at arm's length, and then also under situation five, that it's a result of an agreement. Yeah, you can expect a few questions from the tax office. To, they would be expected to produce evidence as to why what you've done is commercially appropriate and Fair and reasonable and an arm's length return. And then what about if the CMT holds all shares or holds all units in the entity? Then we would avoid the not at arm's length discussion at this level, correct? Yeah, so subject to that sort of look through point at saying, well, then what's that company or what's that unit trust doing? And is that operating at arm's length? So if our CMT owns 100% of the units in a unit trust, at that unit trust is receiving distributions from a family trust or doing other things with related parties that are artificially inflating its distributable income, then that's going to have a flow through impact on the, the CMT as well. And then what about if all the income that's coming into the unit trust that's held 100% by the CMT, what if all that income is from third parties? Yeah, then you should be on relatively safe ground there. Good. But then what about if there's also another entity? So let's say the father has two entities and one entity is 100% held by the CMT and the other entity is 100% held by the father and then third-party income goes to both of them and, of course, the father controls which income goes to one and which income goes to the other. Given that the income that arrives in the CMT is 100% paid by third parties 100% for, for example, for work done, let's say it's a PSB, a professional services business, 100% for work done, it's just that the father happens to operate two separate businesses, then it would still be at arm's length, correct? Yeah, you're probably getting into the territory where it depends significantly on the, the specific facts and circumstances because there's two ways that you can sort of artificially adjust the return that's going to be paid on those units or those shares. And that's by either artificially increasing the amount of revenue or profits that entity is generating or artificially reducing the expenses that it incurs. And so if you've mm. got two two unit trusts side by side and, and they're both controlled by dad and dad says, okay, well, I'm going to, even though it's third party contracts, I'm going to siphon all of the revenue to unit trust number one, where the units are owned by child maintenance trust. Then I'm going to make sure that all the expenses are paid by unit trust number two, which is owned by, by dad personally. You could arguably still have a situation where you've got an artificially contrived scheme, even though the revenue is from a third party because they've acted in a way that artificially diverts the revenue to one place and the expenses somewhere else. 
So you yep. just, uh, really the moral of the story is if that CMT is going to invest in related entities, you just need to be pretty careful to make sure that you're managing them and any inter-entity transactions on a on an arm's length basis. Yes, but if that's the case, you know, for example, you have one employee only working on, and let's say they're slightly different, you know, let's say one entity does only provide services of the type A and entity B only provides services of the type B. And then you have an employee that only works on A and another employee that only works on B. So if the expenses are very clearly belonging to one or the other, then I think it could work. Do you yeah, agree? absolutely. Yeah, it certainly can be. Oh, like the fact that the CMT owns equity in one entity doesn't mean that no one in the family can operate other entities. It just means that they need to be making sure that they're accounting for the income and revenue appropriately. And if simplified even further, you've got two completely standalone businesses that are operating with no relationship between the two. And one of the businesses is in a unit trust owned by the CMT and the other business is in a company owned by dad. That in and of itself is not an issue at all. It's only where you start intermingling funds or, or artificially trying to inflate or reduce amounts in one entity to benefit the other that you've got something you need to worry about. Um, with respect to situation four, the TR98-4 actually runs through three examples. Let me just very quickly check whether we have covered all examples. The first example includes a discretionary trust, so we already know <laughs> a big no-no, don't do that. Then example two includes units in a unit trust. And I think in that example, I don't actually see what the issue is because a trustee in a unit trust, I think by definition, I see, but actually in example two, again, you have a distribution from a discretionary trust. So again, it's a big no because there's a discretionary trust involved. And then example three is a partner in a partnership. And so there you just have to really make sure that the income and the expenses are distributed evenly. But the good moral of the uh, story from example three is that the CMT can even be the partner in a partnership, correct? Yeah, yeah. And whether or not that's a good idea commercially may be a completely different story, but uh, at least from a tax perspective, it's permitted. Yeah, it probably isn't a good idea, but it's still good to know that it could be done in uh, theory and you just would have to make sure that expenses are distributed evenly. And that also leads back to what you said before when we discussed debt running two different businesses. Yeah, at the, at the CMT, is, is, it's ultimately just another trust at law. So anything that an ordinary trust can do, a CMT can do. So it can borrow money, it can become a partner, it could invest in a whole range of different assets. It's actually a pretty broad scope of things that it's allowed to do. And generally, its activities are more governed by what's in the family's best interests and the kids, ultimately the kids' best interests, as opposed to... Um, any sort of restriction that's imposed under trust law or under the Tax Act. Good. So that was situation four. Now, before we come to situation five, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20 percent. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups because this year I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Situation number five. 
Result of an agreement. 5. Quote, it is derived as a result of an agreement entered into or carried out to secure the accessible income as accepted trust income. Before we look at situation number 5 in TR 98-4, let me take you back to section 102 AG again, just so that you have heard the actual law, because the actual law is already very prescriptive and actually already identifies the issue. So section 102 AG says in paragraph 4 and 5, and now I'm quoting, Subsection 2 does not apply, and subsection 2 is all about accepted income, does not apply in relation to assessable income derived by a trustee directly or indirectly under or as a result of an agreement that was entered into or carried out by any person, so it can be anybody, for the purpose or for purposes that included the purpose of securing that that assessable income would be accepted trust income. And then paragraph 5 in determining whether subsection 4 applies, so subsection 4 is what we just read, in determining whether subsection 4 applies in relation to an agreement, no regard shall be had to a purpose that is merely an incidental purpose. So for section 102 AG paragraph 4 and 5, you need a purpose other than deriving accepted income. And this other purpose is obvious. You want to provide for your children. This is what it is about in the end. So you most likely have another purpose and the accepted income, if you do it well, is just incidental to the whole thing. So that was section 102 AG paragraph 4 and 5. What TR 98 4 does in paragraph 15 is just adding examples, just as before when we spoke about the non-arms transactions. Paragraph 15 just adds examples. And the examples, just so you have heard them before, the examples in paragraph 15 are distributions from an existing discretionary trust are made or could be made. So that's important, could be made directly to a child. So that means even if the child is just a potential beneficiary, then it's already an issue. So distributions from an existing discretionary trust are made or could be made directly to a child. But following a family breakdown, distributions are made instead from the discretionary trust to a CMT, which is then established, or to a unit trust or other entity in which the CMT has an interest. So before, the discretionary trust distributed directly to the child, and now the discretionary trust distributes to the CMT, and then the CMT distributes to the child, and the ATO says that is a no-no. Another example, and so now I'm quoting again, another example is where income is to be paid and a trustee receives property, but must use it only in the purchase of an annuity producing income of the agreed amount. So I'm a little bit hazy with that example. I'm not 100% sure what it is about, but I think I'm asking Patrick actually about this one. So let's just refer this one to the interview. So that is the plain text of paragraph 15 in TR 98-4 about situation number five when you have an agreement. So now let's cut across to Patrick Elwood of Clover Law in Brisbane. So then we come to situation five, result of an agreement. And that is basically like a part 4a clause, correct? That's basically just any other funny business you come up with. If it's the result of an agreement that is just done to turn accessible income into accepted income, then it is an issue. But my question to that is, 
I mean, that's the sole purpose of a CMT. The only reason that parents set up a CMT is to turn accessible income into accepted income. So my thinking is that it doesn't actually, this clause doesn't actually affect the CMT as such, but it affects the income that is running into the CMT. Do you agree? Yeah, to me, it's really Lib 4 and Lib 5 are just two two sides to the same coin. It's just two different ways of saying that if you're taking steps to artificially increase the amount of income, then the tax office doesn't like it and you've got a problem and you could they pose it in two different ways. Under Lib 4, they say, well, this is all about the, the income or the return not being on arm's length. Item 5 is saying, well, it's because you've entered into an artificial scheme or arrangement, so it's the anti-avoidance part for A type stuff. But inevitably, if you have a problem under one, you're going to have a problem under the other, and vice versa. So it's there's the begrudging acceptance by the tax office that these are a genuine structure. They're permitted under the Tax Act for a reason, and there's... There's plenty of circumstances where they're appropriate, but underlying all of this is the principles out of part for I around and avoidance and not taking steps solely to obtain a tax benefit and really not doing it in a way which creates additional or unnecessary complexity or artificiality to the arrangement. And that, like the, the share classes to me is a good example of that, that if your CMT buys ordinary class shares in a family company that I think is relatively safe subject to what the company's doing whereas if the CMT is going to go and acquire that special class of share that's been created solely for the CMT and it's generating an, an unusual rate of return well the tax office is going to target that and say well this is a contrived arrangement you've gone and taken all of these additional steps to get this tax benefit that served no purpose other than to get family income into this CMT so you could get the accepted trust income treatment. And then situation five lists two examples again. The first one is again about a discretionary trust. It's actually about an existing tr discretionary trust. And that is actually something I forgot to touch on earlier. If these entities already exist before the family breakdown, then it's also an issue. Actually, that was, I think, under situation one, actually, where the discretionary trust already existed before the breakdown, and then they wanted to basically change the existing discretionary trust into a CMT. And that, of course, doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. It has to be a new, new trust with newly acquired property. And then also the problem is that it's a discretionary trust anyway. But what I want to lead to is example two under situation five, because that actually doesn't make any sense to me. And there, they basically raise the issue that the trustee receives property, but must use it only in the purchase of an annuity producing income of the agreed amount. And there, I'm not sure why that is an issue. So for example, if the uh, dad contributes, let's say, $100,000 into the CMT and then invests it as a, a long-term deposit to receive a you know, regular interest income, and hence that would be an annuity, why would that be an issue? Yeah, I, I think that really just highlights the sort of the greyness on that fifth limb. And that's the same greyness you have any time you look at these part for A, any voids type cases, there's there's always some scenarios which are clearly an issue and some scenarios which are clearly fine. And then a lot in the middle where you can argue either way, depending whether you're the tax purveyor or the ATO. I think if you look at that annuity one specifically, like in that ruling, there is a comment from the ATO that actually says, well, just merely acquiring an annuity, that 
in and of itself isn't the issue. So if the if the dad contributes one hundred thousand dollars and the trustee makes an independent decision that the that the investment which is in the best interests of the children is an annuity, then the trustee can go off and do that, and you're perfectly fine. And I don't think it's particularly well articulated in that ruling, but what they're saying is one of these artificially contrived schemes is where the dad makes the contribution to the trustee conditional that says I'm only going to contribute this money if you acquire this specific annuity and it's an annuity which is designed to pay out up until the period when the child turns 18 with no residual capital value so that there's no capital that can ultimately pass to the children when they turn 18 and the tax office there and I think it's debatable but the tax office there is saying well this investment is not an investment which was in the best interests of the child because the trustee could have gone off and bought an asset which would have generated an income and would have had capital value when they turned 18 and they've only bought this asset because the parent demanded it despite what was in the best interests of the child and perhaps, I don't think they've expressly stated it there, but perhaps they've targeted that annuity because it's going to maximise the income which gets accepted trust income and simultaneously minimised the capital value at the end of it. So they're sort of saying, well, you can't preemptively dictate how the trustee needs to manage that money if the way in which they're trying to dictate is not going to be in the best interest of the child. So, I mean, that's where they're coming at. As I said, you can debate that all day long and it's arguably if that's an investment which the tax office says the trustee could have independently decided that they wanted to invest in, well, what's the issue if it's an investment that one of the parents has mandated? Yeah, it's really ultimately just adding that element of grayness, a typical sort of behaviour, just trying to scare people off this structure by creating additional complexity and additional concern that you might inadvertently do something wrong, so let's not use it in the first place. I actually have one more question for you, and that is has nothing to do with CMTs. It has to do about lump sum payments. So I understand that rather than having an ongoing child support payment, you can actually agree on a lump sum and that will then end all future child obligations. I have two questions regarding that. A, I assume that's legal. I, it would be great if you could confirm that. And then B, how is that treated? I'm assuming that's also covered by 5150, meaning it's tax exempt. But it would be great if you could confirm that. I can answer the second question but probably not the first one on, on the second one i would have thought that a lump sum payment yeah it's 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 no different to an ongoing income payment so it is it should be exempt under 5150 and it like that's no different if you've got an obligation to make a payment to your spouse under a consent order or, or a financial agreement under the family law act the party who's making the payment if they need to go and liquidate some assets or, or transfer an asset then they're going to pay whatever capital gains tax they had on that asset anyway, but then the payment to the spouse in and of itself is not tax-free. The second part of the question that's probably more for a family lawyer rather than a tax lawyer is, well, what what's the impact if there's a lump sum instead of an ongoing child support payment? What I don't know is whether you can actually do that in a way which prevents the, the spouse who receives it from coming back in, in three or four years' time and saying, well, circumstances have changed, I now want a regular child support payment as well because there is a tendency by the family courts to say, well, we're going to do whatever is in the best interest of the children. And so the fact that one of the spouses may have said, I'll take this lump sum and, uh, and I'll waive my right to receive a, 
an ongoing income stream that might sound good on day one, but when that money's been spent frivolously and has disappeared and in four or five years' time, the school fees aren't getting paid for the kids because there's no ongoing income support. I, I would be concerned that there may be a broader power for the family court to intervene and say, okay, well, the money's gone. What's in the best interest of the kids? The best interest of the kids is to order child support payments as well and effectively double dip. So I don't know whether that's possible or not. That would be an interesting question for a family lawyer to comment on. Welcome back. So this was a mini-series about the accepted income and child maintenance trust based on Section 102 AG and also TR 98-4. I have to apologize again. The next episode is episode 390 and I'm not 100% sure yet what it will be about. And sorry, now I do know what the next episode will be about. We are done with accepted income and child maintenance trust. That is now done and dusted for now. But we will still continue with child support. So we are turning our four-part mini-series into a six-part mini-series. And next week, or in the next episode, I should say, in the next episode, we will cover non-agency payments. And then in episode 391, we will cover lump sum child support payments. What do you need to consider when your client is fed up with the constant fighting over child support and just wants to pay one lump sum and be done for good? So we will discuss the details and pros and cons of lump sum payments in 391 and in the next episode, non-agency child support payments. That's the plan. So now I hand back to the uh, normal ending words. I will be here next Monday. Please come in. And let's talk about text. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.